the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter One, Into the Void. She wanted to have kissed him on the lips, but she knew that was out of bounds. He was married, after all. The long kiss on his cheek might have been in bounds, but she regretted it. What if there was something to those movie curses? The kisser never returns. She wanted to return to Cheshire. It had become home. Did her impulsively stolen kiss ruin that? A thin tree branch swung back and slapped Susan in the face. Pay attention, princess, Charon growled quietly over his shoulder. Don't follow so close, but keep up the pace. We got a lot of woods to get through if we're going to reach the waypoint before dark. Charon looked and sounded like a cranky drill sergeant. Susan frowned as she wiped dry leaf bits off her face. Charon had been snide to her even before they left. He was clearly not happy that the scout he was supposed to escort down to Massachusetts turned out to be a woman. Nonetheless, it was her experience as a young girl, riding her bike across that forgotten bridge for ice cream at the Christian camp, and on all the logging trails that ran through the woods, that qualified her as the scout. She resolved to stay focused and follow Charon's every move, if only to give him less to criticize. She fended off the passing branches more carefully, and kept pace five yards behind him, just as he ordered. Six months ago, when the power was on and the world was normal, the three-mile walk from her apartment to the bank in downtown Boston seemed like a major excursion. The months of no power and walking almost everywhere had toughened her. Now, a multi-mile rapid hike through the woods was no big deal. Despite her resolve, her mind nagged her about the gravity of her choices. She was jogging toward a closed New Hampshire border, behind an abrasive ex-military man and another man she barely knew. What woman in her right mind would volunteer to do such a thing? Difficult times call for difficult decisions, she told herself. She agreed to the mission to try and bring food relief to her friends in Cheshire, to help the Simmons household, to help Martin. The Simmons's home fared better than most after the collapse of the nation's power grid in October. Three months later, however, even they were running low on food. Very few households had enough food to last through the winter. Charon dropped to the ground and rolled under a long, low branch instead of lifting it or stooping under it. Susan dropped and rolled, too, nearly matching his move. Not bad for a former bank teller, eh? She aimed her thoughts at Charon's brain. She wanted to see his surprised face because she had matched his move. He didn't turn around, however. Telepathy doesn't seem to work when you want it to. She had learned so many new things since walking homeless out of Boston in October. She shuddered to think what would have happened to her if Martin hadn't rescued her and offered to let her stay at his house in New Hampshire. A thoroughly city-fied single woman stood little chance in the chaos and the food riots that embroiled the city after that first week. Everyone struggled to adapt to the rapidly crumbling economy. No fuel trucks, no usual jobs, no food deliveries. 
People had to face the onset of winter with whatever they already had on hand. In many households, that amounted to very little. The latest big TV or the coolest jet ski were of little value when the pantry was bare. It seemed like everyone in the Simmons's house had some sort of skill that benefited the group. Margaret knew frugal nutrition. Judy learned to operate the radios. Carlos was skilled at making things out of wood, like the buckboard wagon. Andy contributed his knowledge of wild edibles. Martin was the household's resourceful leader. Everyone had a skill. Everyone but her. When they got news that there was a clandestine food convoy, it buoyed hopes. The news that the convoy might fail due to tightened security at bridge crossings disappointed everyone who knew of the scheme. The abandoned bridge over the Connecticut River that she knew as a child appeared to be the only hope for salvaging Operation Longbow. Charon raised his fist, signaling for Susan and Malcolm to stop. They had come to a road. He motioned for them to get low, concealed, and wait. Carefully, Charon studied the road in both directions. He seemed to be waiting forever. Susan was silently delighted at the chance to rest her aching legs. Doing chores the old-fashioned way, like hand-pumping water from the Simmons as well, or walking everywhere, had put her in better shape than she had been in in years. Nonetheless, several miles of woods at a brisk pace left her winded. She breathed through her nose so as not to look winded. I sure hope he knows where he's going, whispered Malcolm. You don't know where he's going? I thought you were both part of Longbow, she whispered back. Charon continued to study both directions of the road. What did he expect to see? With fuel scarce, vehicle traffic was very rare. Only government vehicles had fuel. Was he looking for spies or lookouts hidden along the road? Yeah, we are. But I'm just a low-level guy, a mole, uh, until I was found out. Charon, he's one of the top tactical guys. Is he always that uh, cranky? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I hadn't worked with him until today. I don't think he's convinced that Longbow is worth all the trouble and risk. Charon silenced Malcolm and Susan with a fierce look. Everything about Charon, his eyes, his tone, his mannerisms, betrayed an ill-concealed irritation. He was a man who didn't want to be where he was, doing what he was. He reminded her of the neighbor boy, peeved at missing the Saturday night party with his friends because he was forced to babysit her as a six-year-old. If he's one of their top guys, Susan wondered, what if he's right? What if the whole clandestine food convoy scheme was too much trouble and risk? Part of her knew that she was doing what she could to help the plan succeed. The other part of her felt a gnawing dread. Much like that one time at summer camp with the canoe. She wanted to get out to the floating platform in the lake to read her book. The canoe paddles were locked in the boathouse. She untied a canoe and gave herself a mighty push off the dock. Her plan was to coast out to the platform. She ran out of push halfway out. That same cold doubt filled her now. Finally, Charon made a series of quick hissing sounds to get their attention. It was time to run across the road, on his signal. He raised and then dropped his arm. 
The run across the narrow road was silent, except for the scritch-scratch-scritch of rapid footfalls on blacktop. It took, perhaps, all of three seconds to get across. The pine woods on the opposite side swallowed them without a trace. They were jogging again. When she decided to go on this mission, she felt determined, if not particularly confident. She was steeled, nonetheless, to do whatever it took to get food to Cheshire. Now her decision felt foolish and impulsive. It wasn't like she, alone, could save the day. She could do her part and find a decent trail through the forested hills that the trucks could follow, but would there be any trucks? What if they were intercepted by federal troops? From what little news Susan had heard, the powers in Washington and their loyal agencies would never allow the coalition states to truck food into New Hampshire. Washington might have written off the rebellion of the Midwest and South as the impertinence of unsophisticated hicks in flyover states. Having New Hampshire refuse federal aid, and therefore federal control, in what amounted to the Feds' backyard was too much impertinence to tolerate. New Hampshire was cut off. The state would receive no aid until they complied with federal orders. Charon led them down a gentle slope. He slowed the pace to a brisk walk. There were still too many trees to see more than thirty yards ahead. She wondered how the three of them would get across the guarded Massachusetts border to Northfield. The Mass State Police and Mass National Guard units were supposed to have roadblocks and roving patrols in the woods along the border. If she got captured, her efforts to help Martin would have been a total waste. What would happen if she did get captured? Charon raised his fist again. She and Malcolm came to a halt. A hundred yards ahead of them, down the slope and through the trees, were glimpses of the reflected sky on a small lake. The gray-white ice formed a broad crescent, open in the center and not connected to shore. Charon motioned for Susan and Malcolm to stay put. He ventured a few dozen yards to the left and then doubled back, scanning the ground as if searching for a lost glove. He stopped thirty yards to the right and motioned for them to join him. We rack out here, Charon said. This is a good little hollow. Wide enough for three. We can settle in without being seen, but still have a great view all around. He took off his backpack and knelt to pull out some supplies. Malcolm dropped his backpack in the shallow depression. Susan moved to a spot triangulated from the other two men and slowly set down Martin's gray backpack. Her legs felt like jelly, but she wasn't going to be the first one to sit. She was not going to complain, either. This'll be a cold camp, Princess, Charon said. Don't want anyone knowing we're here. Susan glared her disapproval at the new nickname, but Charon wasn't looking. I've got no problems with a cold camp, she said flatly. She could figure that cold camp meant no fires for warmth or cooking, but she wasn't entirely sure what else a cold camp meant. She was not, however, going to ask. Yeah, well, I don't want to hear any whining about being cold. We're several miles from the border, but with the leaves off the trees, a fire could be seen for miles. Malcolm flashed a little smile at her. Yeah, to conserve body heat, it helps to rake up a big pile of— I know, I know, interrupted Susan. 
a big pile of leaves to put under our sleeping bags to insulate us from the ground. This isn't my first night in the woods, you know. She could see that Malcolm was trying to buffer Charon's gruff tone, but she speculated that he was also trying to ingratiate himself. She didn't want to encourage that. Malcolm had the roving eyes of a player, but lacked the assertive arrogance of a predator. She read him to be the sort of man who would interpret any smile as an invitation. She had no time or patience for correcting misinterpretations. She also knew that her one night's experience in the woods near I-93 hardly made her a seasoned roughing-it camper, but she didn't want to sound like a newbie. She was clueless then, but there was something protective about Martin that made her feel safe. She didn't feel particularly safe at the moment. She raked up leaves as quickly as the two men were. She had her sleeping bag spread out over the leaves and reasoned that if leaves beneath the sleeping bag were good, then a layer of leaves on top would be good insulation against the night air. With the camo tarp that Martin gave her, she created a tube around her sleeping bag and filled the space with more dry leaves. Charon and Malcolm didn't do the same, but watched her curiously. She noticed them watching and felt self-conscious. Was she doing something stupid or clever? She decided to go with clever and proceed. Hesitation was an admission of error. She gave them a little shrug as if to say, fine, do it your way, whatever. Once they had their bedding situated, Charon said, Light's dim enough. Twilight'll make us harder to see if anybody's out here. We go down to the lake and get water. There'll be no time for that tomorrow morning. Two will stand watch while the other fills their canteens. You got tablets, right? He sounded skeptical as he looked Susan in the eye. Of course I do, she said. Martin had given her a few water purification tablets. Fine, get your stuff. We're going down. Susan grabbed Martin's metal bottle and a plastic one that she had salvaged. She took the purifier tablets, but tucked the mini-filter into her pocket. She reasoned that she could save the tablets for when filtering wasn't possible. The three of them moved from tree to tree, down the slope, to the water's edge. You first, princess. Make it fast. We'll keep lookout. She growled under her breath. That was not a nickname she wanted to stick. She glanced at her watch. Then, as quickly as she could, she filled the filter's plastic bag. She squeezed the clean water into her first water bottle. When it was full, she squirted the remainder in her mouth to hydrate herself. The second bag full, she filled the larger metal bottle. A glance at her watch showed that it took two and a half minutes to fill both bottles. You said you had tablets, Charon said accusingly. I do. I'm saving them for when I really need them. She acted nonchalant as she took her place behind the tree that Malcolm used for cover. But she could feel her face getting hot. She looked at her watch again, in order to time Malcolm. He fussed with pouring the lake water through a bandana. It didn't go smoothly. He took over three minutes. She studied the shoreline across the lake. There were no houses visible, no lights, no sign of any movement. They could have been in the middle of the Yukon, for all she could tell. Charon took two minutes exactly to fill his canteen. Susan took some satisfaction at not being the slowest one of the group, but she wasn't about to say anything. Cockiness usually ended badly. 
Back in their little hollow, Charon rummaged in his backpack. He pulled out three MREs. The first one he tossed in front of Malcolm. The second he tossed at Susan's feet. No fires, but we'll get a better night's sleep with a hot meal in us. Charon looked at Susan with one eyebrow raised, as if expecting her to ask what it was. She wasn't about to give him the satisfaction of being clueless. A month ago, Martin had demonstrated how to use the FEMA meal packs. Again, it was just a single experience, but she went with it. Opening the package, the contents looked a little different, but similar. The bag had, fill to this line, printed on it, so she knew it was similar enough. She pulled out her pocket knife, cut open the main bag. She poured in the water, inserted the meal pouch, and rested the box against her boot. She was hoping Charon would acknowledge her having a clue, but he didn't comment. He turned to prepare his own MRE. To cold fingers, outside of gloves, the steam from the meal pouch seemed painfully hot. Susan cradled the pouch in one gloved hand while her other hand spooned out the hot chicken and noodles. The food was almost too hot, but she savored the heat as much as the meal. When their meals were done, Charon spoke in low tones. Sound carried a long way through the bare woods. We'll be ready to move out just before dawn. Got that? He shot a piercing glance at Susan. Totally ready to go. Not almost ready or I'm getting ready. Got it, she said with a frown. She made herself a vow to be up and packed before either of them. We've only got a few miles to go to the border, but I want to be ready to cross before eight. I don't want a lot of talking then, so I'm telling you what to expect right now. When I came north, I observed their roadblock on the river road. It's staffed by just two men at a time. They alternate two guardsmen for twelve hours, two state police for twelve. I'm guessing this back road doesn't see much traffic, so they've invested minimal manpower. The men who draw this duty don't seem to have much fire in the belly for it. For the most part, they stay on a small construction trailer beside the road. They can see up and down the road a long ways, but don't venture outside much. They change personnel at 0800 and 2000 hours. I figure the best time to get across is just before the next shift change. The old shift will be tired and more focused on packing up and getting out. They'll be less attentive then. Kind of like the Red Afghan checkpoints outside of Kunduz. Red Afghans? Malcolm asked. You were in Afghanistan before the Taliban took over? Never mind. My point was, they tend to be lazy like the Afghans, but they're not blind. They have wireless motion detectors strung along the border. It's a net maybe an eighth of a mile on either side of the road. They know most people don't go very far off of the road. We will. The sensors are pretty well hidden, unless you know what to look for. So, uh, this shouldn't be too tough observed Malcolm. The sensors? No, continued Charon. It's the drones we need to be careful of. Uh, drones? Malcolm sat back. Yes, they don't have the manpower to have boots on the ground all along the border, so they're using little drones. They fly them before dawn and after dusk. Probably figure people will try to run the border in the twilight when they can see where they're going without flashlights. My guess is that the drones are equipped with active IR. 
It's easier to spot glowing bodies running or hiding in the woods. It takes less manpower to spot the runners. They can then vector some boots to intercept them. What if they do see us? Susan asked. Oh, what if we get captured? Even in the dim light, Susan could see his eyes narrow into a piercing stare. The Coalition has sunk too much time and resources, precious resources, into this scheme to keep your state alive as a thorn in the Fed's side. You will not be captured if you do exactly what I say when I say it. Susan's head sank into her shoulders. She had vowed not to ask any stupid questions, yet had done precisely that. This was one of those wish-I-could-just-die moments, but she couldn't simply die to escape. Everyone in Cheshire was counting on her. Martin was counting on her. Malcolm broke the stony silence. Yeah, but if the drone CIR, how do we hide from that? He glanced at Susan with a little smile. She knew he was trying to help her dig out of the hole she found herself in. She was grateful for the help, but cautious that it may amount to earning points. There would be no earning of points. I cached some drone cloaks about a half mile inside the border, Charon said. They're pretty good at masking a person's body heat, if used properly, he glanced at Susan. She was determined to follow directions to the letter. Even so, she hoped her mind wouldn't wander back to things in Cheshire and make a mistake. It wasn't easy to find detachment from the swirl of thoughts in her mind. Now, everybody turn in, Charon said. Susan picked up her MRE trash, then settled into her sleeping bag amid the crunch and rustle of the leaves below her. The leaves above her sleeping bag rustled with an annoying loudness every time she moved. Perhaps that was why Malcolm and Charon looked at her funny when she was constructing her tarp tube. All was not regrets, however. She did feel surprisingly warm while curled up in a little ball. Despite the moonless night, the tree trunks and branches were still visible black stripes against a dark blue night sky. Carefully shaping a small gap in her sleeping bag, she was able to use her exhaled warm air to keep her nose from getting too cold. Lying down in just one position was better for heat retention and making less noise. It wasn't too conducive for being comfortable enough and nodding off. Even if she had been comfortable, her mind was too busy replaying the day's events, the witty things that she would have said but didn't occur to her until later, and wondering how everyone was doing back in Cheshire. She assumed that Martin and the others got back to Cheshire okay. She imagined him on a night watch, breathing cold air like she was. Was his night as totally quiet as hers? Was he looking up at the same faint twinkling stars? The thought that he might gave her some comfort. Somewhere between her jumbled thoughts, sleep snuck in and pulled her plug. And so we begin book four. The timeline of Susan's Bridge runs parallel to the latter half of book three. The focus is very much on Susan as the work she's undertaking pushes her far beyond what she ever imagined. Now that the harvest season seems done, finally, I'm hoping to find more time for developing Book 6. I have been working on it when I can, and making some progress. 
I do appreciate the support you listeners have been giving by buying me a coffee on my Buy Me a Coffee page, as well as monthly memberships on either Buy Me a Coffee or Patreon. Your support really does help with the cost of the podcast hosting and other expenses. Thanks for the coffees and becoming supporting members.